0: Now on the twenty-fourth day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God a quarter of the day. For another quarter... They had made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Joshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabananiah, Bunai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Joshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Shabiah, Hodiah, Shabbaniah, and Perithiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone, You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gargashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Let us receive the word of the Lord. This
1: I'm going to wager uh a bet. I got I guess I'm not supposed to bet up here. But anyway, y'all use that language. I'm going to, I'm going to wager a bet that almost nobody has heard the name Fred Tex Winter. Anybody know who that is? Ah Mr. Adam Teeth. Ah, I see somebody to buy Sam knows who that is. We should ask them who it is to see if they really know. But I I won't do that. Fred Tex Winter is someone that, as you see, almost no one knows. But Fred Tex Winter is probably as responsible or more responsible for the repeat victories in the history of the Chicago Bulls. Here's a picture of him. Not the guy on the right, you know him. That's Phil Jackson. That's Tex on the left. He was never a high profile NBA coach. He coached at the collegiate level And he introduced Phil Jackson and the team, of course, the major player, Michael Jordan, to a thing called the Triangle Offense. Now, I remember Michael Jordan when he came into the league. I was a lot younger, and I was following basketball. And I also remember this player who was the best player on the planet, period, hands down. I still think the best basketball player that ever lived. Michael Jordan and the Bulls for the first few years could not win a world championship. They would get beat every year, time after time, by the Boston Celtics or the Detroit Pistons or they'd run into the buzzsaw of LA Lakers. Was it because Michael Jordan didn't have talent? Absolutely not. You know why they didn't advance? because they weren't a team. They built the entire program around one individual, Michael Jordan. And Tex Winter said, we need to change that. And he introduced them to the triangle offense. Actually, he inherited it from somebody even further back than him. And it changed everything. I I say that to remind us of something about this series that we've been in the middle of in Nehemiah. And here, here's how I wanna summarize it. The book of Nehemiah is not about me. The book of Nehemiah is about we. The book of Nehemiah is not about Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, in my opinion, is not even about leadership. Yep. The book of Nehemiah is about community And what God did with a group of people Who were committed in covenant relationship to one another Can I use the sports image of team To advance the purposes of God And when they came together Of course under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra before that God accomplished remarkable things in their midst. Now, you may remember from the story that was just read by Pastor Ferris, maybe this slipped by you. They said that the way this this happened, this time of confession, it happened because they had decided to read the book of the law. Now, of course, the book of the law wasn't in everybody's hand. It was in the hand of the priests. So the priest stood on the steps and began to read out loud the book of the law. And the people stood and listened to the reading, not a form of entertainment that we think of today, to that reading for no less than four hours straight. Can you imagine that nowadays? I mean, you guys start getting antsy after 30 minutes when I'm preaching. I can see it on your face. Four hours of just reading the book of the law? They were overwhelmed as they heard the book of the law because it called them to repentance. And initially when they heard the law, they wanted to cry out and mourn. And Nehemiah said, no, no, not now. First, let's rejoice. And then we'll go to confession. To put it another way, we're in this together. Well, you also notice in this chapter, chapter 9, is the recounting of God's faithfulness. What a wonderful song to introduce this theme. It's It's a quick overview, but it's a beautiful overview. Some of the points I will leave out for brevity. But they basically said, we understand who we are. We began because God chose us. He chose Abraham. And he brought us from Abraham. We know who we are because we were slaves in Egypt. And God delivered us from the most mighty, powerful kingdom on earth. We know who we are because Moses led us into the land that was promised many years ago to Abraham himself. Though Abraham was not around at the time. But then they said... We also know something else. We know our history. We know that our ancestors appreciated what God did for a day, those are my words, and then forgot it. We know our ancestors exalted in God at the beginning and then they got lazy. They thanked God for all the blessings and then what's worse than laziness, they became disobedient. They became an insolent people. Actually, that word in Hebrew is often used of stubborn animals, right? They won't do their work, like a mule. They became like that, and they rebelled against God, and they walked away from God. And what we want to do, these people say, I think this is very interesting and critical for our own self-understanding because we're such an individualistic society. They said, what we want to do is we want to acknowledge the sins of our fathers and mothers and admit that they are our sins too. Why? Because we're doing exactly the same things? Maybe not. They wanted to acknowledge their heritage and they wanted to say that heritage Is us. That's a critically important element to confession. Not just my sins. But the sins of my heritage. Or to put it in the pronoun we. Not just our sins. But the sins in the history of the church. That's what they were doing. And that's what we frequently do when we read prayers of confession. We acknowledge not only our individual sins, but we acknowledge the corporate sins of ourselves and of our heritage. If you read the book of Nehemiah and get to chapter 13 and you compare it to Ezra, Ezra chapter 9, you will notice that one of the major, if not major sins that is called out among the people is intermarriage. I I want to hasten to add something about intermarriage. This is not a statement about how believers should not marry people of another ethnicity or race. Not at all. That was one of our historical sins to condemn interracial, interethnic relationships. Scripture doesn't argue for that. It seems on the surface to argue for that. But there's something else going on more deeply. Let me remind you of a few things that you may already know in the history of faithful Israel there was a lot of interracial interethnic marriages remember Moses? pretty big guy pretty important figure the greatest first prophet he married a woman who was a Moabite or how about somebody well somebody like Jesus' heritage. You know, in the lineage of Jesus, you have a person who was a Canaanite prostitute who led to the birth of Jesus through Mary. Her name was Rahab. In the lineage of Jesus, you also have a woman named Ruth. Ruth who herself was Moabite. By the way, I misstated, Moses was Midianite, a Midianite wife. A Moabite woman in the lineage of Jesus. A Canaanite woman in the lineage of Jesus. Moses marrying a Midianite. The problem is not intermarriage as such. The problem historically in the Old Testament is that when marriages were formed, they were frequently alliances with other nations and vicariously, sometimes quite directly, other gods. So when you think of intermarriage that was not sanctioned, you think of people like Solomon, whose multiple wives from all over the world led him away from God. You think about King Ahab who married a person who pulled him away from God and it destroyed Israel and Israel's identity. It's about single-hearted devotion to God. That's why they cry out against intermarriage, not because of ethnicity or race, but you're not supposed to be unequally yoked with another who does not share your love of God because it'll divide your heart. That's what Nehemiah is saying. And that's what the law intended to suggest. So let me ask a real poignant question for you and I don't expect an answer and I'm not gonna give you mine. What interferes with your wholehearted allegiance to God? What is it? That's the question. That's what Nehemiah was challenging them to consider and to confess. When we encounter our sins corporately and individually, what is the solution? According to this passage, the solution runs like this. You first acknowledge the holiness of God, and that's in the passage that was read just a few minutes ago. God, you are the giver of life. We are utterly dependent upon you. Everything is owed to you, God, and you're a holy and a righteous God and a faithful God. We acknowledge that. Second, as Isaiah six says, we are a sinful people. Isaiah said, I am a sinful people, and I live among sinful people. And my eyes have seen the Lord, and I am doomed because of his great holiness. I'm that sinful. That's the solution. To acknowledge the Lord as the giver of life, to acknowledge the sins that we have committed and the ones that we know our families have committed, And to admit that we are doomed by sin. Think of the book of Romans where Paul makes it clear. The wages of sin is death. The only reason we have death is because of sin. So the solution is to acknowledge sin. The second part of the solution is to acknowledge particular sinfulness. So... Some of you have actually studied ethics at the university, or maybe it's part of your academic study to teach it. You you know what's characteristic of most, most ethical systems? It's a list of rules, okay, that one ought to follow in order to live an ethical life. And when you do not follow those rules, you have broken an ethical principle, which means you're not following an ethical life. That's good, fascinating. However, something is distinctively different about the Judeo-Christian heritage when we think of ethics or morality. Ethics and morality are inextricably linked with relationship. So in Nehemiah and all throughout Scripture, when sin is confessed, it's not the breaking of a rule. It's the breaking of a relationship with God. Sin is not just being bad. I've been bad plenty of times, even this week. That's not the point. The point is what draws me away from God Because I'm called to be in an intimate relationship with the God of the universe who is supreme over all things and to whom I owe my complete allegiance. So when I ask questions about sin, I'm asking what have I done to offend the one who loves me more than anyone could love me? The one who in Jesus Christ died for me so I could be redeemed. When I ask questions about sin, that's what I'm asking. And the people of enter all understood that in the context of following Yahweh. How does that happen? Well, a godly sorrow for sin. You notice in the passage, sackcloth and ashes. It also comes with an examination of the heart. Psalm one thirty nine is probably the most poignant when it comes to the understanding of the examination of art. Says, Lord, search me and know me. Try me. I, I I wanna know. You you know me, you know me inside and out. Examine me. I can't get away from your presence. No matter where I go, you're there. Psalm one one thirty nine and Many other psalms reflect on that. But there's another solution that relates to confession, and it's a commitment to change. The Greek word is metanoia, a change of heart. So when we confess our sins properly, we're saying, we are so sorry. So sorry, Lord, that we broke relationship with you. And we wanna commit ourselves to being in a proper relationship with you and not walking back into that sin. Change my heart, oh God, make it ever new. What happens when confession takes place? It brings reconciliation between God and humans. We see this in the first chapter, first three chapters of the book of Genesis. There was a perfect union between Adam and Eve in the garden. They walked in the cool of the garden with God like friends. And then when sin entered the story, there was a relationship break. So confession brings back a relationship that's been broken. Jesus looked at this and said, I'll tell you something else. In order to go to confession, to go to the altar you better stop before you go. You better go to your brother or your sister to whom you have sinned against and confess your sin to them and then go to the altar or to confession. It brings reconciliation between God and human beings. It also restores health. You may know Psalm 32, which is a psalm of David after he fell into sin. He said his bones were wasting away. He said, I I just ache from the inside out. Please restore me and heal me, God, through confession. So just a, a flurry of points at the end here. I'm just calling it, for lack of a better term, advice on confession. First bit of advice is this. Remember that confession is a corporate activity. It's a corporate activity. You see it in this passage. We don't just say, oh, that was their sin. We say, we are them. And we confess our sins corporately. Second thing, remember that confession is a private activity as well. Yeah, it's corporate. We pray prayers of confession deliberately every communion Sunday, but it's a private activity as well. It's not so much true in this church. We don't come from a Catholic tradition. But there's some real power in the Catholic tradition, my friends. I wouldn't want to summarily dismiss everything about the Catholic Church. I want to learn from it. The Episcopal Church did that and did it quite well. And they picked up the notion of confession that was significantly different but held the same principle in hand. The Book of Common Prayer, hear these words, speaking of private confession. If there be any of you who by means who by this means cannot quiet his own conscience let me interpret if you're troubled by your own sin and you cannot quiet your conscience concerning that sin herein but require further comfort or counsel let him come to me or to some other minister of god's word and open his grief. If you're struggling with comfort and assurance, go to someone else and let them support you in your confession. It doesn't have to be a Catholic confession booth. It's a great principle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about confession, a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. A classic book that was written by Richard Foster is named Celebration of Discipline. Don't know how many of you have read that book. I would highly recommend it. Richard Foster tells a story that is so compelling to me. It just struck me many years ago when I first read it. He said that he had gotten in prayer to the point of feeling like he needed to, for lack of a better word, purge himself of all the sins from his past. And he said, so I, I went through a spiritual exercise and I sat down in total quiet with a pencil and a piece of paper. And I went through three stages of my life. When I was a child, when I was an adolescent, and when I was an adult. He said, it wasn't a contrivance. What I did is I just sat before God and I asked God, bring to my attention things that could block my fellowship with you? Whether I'm responsible for them or not, something in my past, What what is blocking, impeding my progress? Let me know. He said, I sat down and just started writing the things that came to mind. After he had gone through those three stages of his life, he went to a personal friend that he had immense respect for and he told him uh, what he would like to do. He said, I, I would like to tell you what God revealed to me. And he said, I got out my piece of paper and I slowly and often painfully read what had brought to my, been brought to my attention in the quiet of my heart before God. And he said, My brother listened very carefully and he said, I was about to take my piece of paper and put it back in my folder. And he reached out quickly, his brother, and took it from him. And he took the piece of paper over to the trash can and tore it into a hundred pieces. And then prayed for him. As if to say, like the scriptures say, to those who confess their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. I heard you, my brother. Your sins are forgiven. What a powerful personal moment that must have been. Confession is huge, my friends. I don't think we embrace it as much as we ought to because we just want to be happy. (laughs) But you know what? The real reality of what we often call happiness is unfettered joy. And it comes through confession and a right relationship with God. I, I do want to say one thing here at the end as a a bit of a corrective because I know where sermons can go people can take them in a direction that I'd prefer they not and I know I can't control that but I do want to say something about what I'll call replacement theories for confession that are not biblical one replacement theory for confession some people replace repentance with self pity that's not what god is calling us to some people replace repentance with self loathing that's not what god is calling us to and often unfortunately some people replace repentance true biblical repentance with destructive behavior against themselves. That's not biblical repentance. All of those things are absolutely opposite of what God calls us to. He calls us to confess and to rejoice in forgiveness. Why? Why? Because of the image behind me. The cross. That is God in the flesh. He was there for you. Don't squander the opportunity. To go to the redeemer of your souls. Who is the only one who could absolve sin and find unbelievable joy. As we move to communion this morning, we we frequently pray a prayer confession. And I want to do it a little differently. Um, we, We will have a song following this, but before we do that, I want to pray a prayer confession for all of us. It's for me too. But what I'd like for you to do is instead of looking at it on the screen and reading it, what I'd like for you to do is close your eyes, bow your heads, and in silence, let it sink in. Almighty God, You love us, but we do not love you fully. You call us, but we do not always listen. We often walk away from our neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We often condone evil and hatred and warfare and greed. So, God of grace and mercy, help us to admit our sin so that as you move toward us in mercy, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness through Christ, our Redeemer. Gracious Lord, spare those who confess their faults Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared to the world in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O merciful God, for his sake, that we may lead, lead a holy, just, and humble life for the glory of your name. Amen.